Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue working our way through the book of Philippians. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is sharing part two of a message. But before I get to that, I just want to invite you to come to worship with us on Sundays at Calvary Baptist Church. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and we meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings. Now, we also have a small group Bible study that meets at 930, and it is age-graded, divided up. There's several options there. We would love to have you come and be a part as we study uh, through God's Word in a smaller setting. But come and worship with us. If you need more information, you can always find that at calvaryfayetteville.com or email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or just simply give us a call. You can reach us at 479-442-4634. Well, again, Pastor Kirk is working his way through the book of Philippians, and we are looking at part two of a message from Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, entitled, Two Christlike Servants. Let's listen together. Well, last week we, we actually began a two-part message entitled, Two Christlike Servants. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in challenging this church to diligently strive for unity, uh, to work together to advance the gospel even in times of suffering and difficulty, he then gave them the challenge to live in, un in unity in such a way that compared to the world, it would be supernatural living. It's not normal for people to put other people ahead of themselves. It's not that way in the world, and oftentimes it's not that way in the church. And so Paul is challenging this church to set aside any differences that they have, to put one another first, to show the world what it's like to live as ambassadors of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of heaven. And so he gave them some examples of what that looks like. First of all, the greatest example of humility and selflessness was Jesus Christ. And we have that passage that is a that was an ancient hymn in the early church about how Christ humbled himself and then how he was highly exalted and that one day every knee is going to bow to him, every tongue confess that he is indeed the one Lord of the universe, the Lord of our lives. Then he gives a couple of more examples. He gives the example we talked about last week of Timothy, this partner in the gospel ministry. And we know about Timothy. We find two books of the New Testament are letters written to him. Paul, late in life, writes to his protege, this young Timothy, uh, and encourages him. But today we encounter a second example of this kind of courageous selflessness, this willingness to give yourself away, to make yourself available to be used of God. And the man's name is Epaphroditus. We don't read so much about Epaphroditus. He's only mentioned in this book, and he's only mentioned twice, and very little is told to us about him. But there's enough for us to learn from him. So we had a key truth last week, 
And the key truth is still true for today, and it is this. Effective ministry, effective ministry can only be accomplished when God's people work together for God's glory. The only way a church can make a difference in this world in which we live is for God's people to humbly and selflessly put Christ first and work together for his glory. Even the apostle Paul was not some kind of a solo hero. The book of Acts and Paul's letters mention the names of many faithful men and women who though they did not get the same press, the same recognition, the same uh, admiration that Paul got, they were necessary to his success. And I have an idea when we get to heaven, there are going to be many unsung heroes that we're going to find that God has rewarded and God has recognized for their selfless uh, submission to his cause. Without these other partners, Paul mentions, and I think if I remember correctly reading one time, that Paul names at least six, 60 or 70 of these men and women uh, who he thanks for their faithful service and partnership with him in the gospel. Especially, we read a long list in the book of Romans at the close. So we've come to some of these final verses of Philippians. Paul names two of these others, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and tells us why they were important to his ministry. Now, we're not going to revisit that message by any means, but let me just remind you of the five things he said about Timothy last week. We're not going to reread that passage, but he said there were five things about Timothy that were unique to him, but also a challenge to you and me. First of all, Timothy was unique. Paul said in verse 20 of Philippians 2, I have no one like him. That means I have no one who is equal in soul with me. We are in step together. He is, he is my mentee. I am his mentor. He is following in my footsteps. He is, when I send him out to a church, it is as though I am there myself. He speaks for me. He is, he is a one of a kind. Timothy was unique. Timothy, number two, was selfless. He was selfless. He was genuinely concerned for the welfare of these believers in Philippi. Timothy had been there at the start when this church was organized with Paul. Now, 10 years later, he still cares about those people. While others, Paul says in verse 21, are only concerned about themselves, Timothy is genuinely concerned about you. That's a pastor's heart. Number three, he was proven. He was proven. He has proven worth. That means he has been put to the test and he has passed the test. Proven means tested and tried in hardship and in trials. Listen, you're not, you don't prove yourself in the classroom. 
Now, as important as it is for us to gather here every Sunday and worship together, and we cannot be pleasing to God by neglecting the house of God if we are physically able to be among God's people on the Lord's day. Keep in mind, we are not Sabbath keepers. <clears throat> Excuse me. We are not Sabbath keepers. But remember that God sent his people, his beloved people, into Babylonian captivity for 70 years to do what? He was reclaiming the number of Sabbath days that they had neglected and defiled over the years. All those 70 years, every year, every 365 days, was making up for a Sabbath day that they had neglected. And God's moral law still holds true. We are to remember the Lord's day and keep it holy. But understand this, your, your proven worth will not get proven in a worship service. It gets partially proven by your being here. But proven worth gets put to the test out there in the field of battle, day by day, in Christian warfare. Timothy was of proven worth. He had faced adversity and trials, and he had come through uh, successfully. Number four, he was devoted. Paul said he is like a son with a father. We are devoted to one another. He's devoted to me. Number five, he was a servant. He served not just Paul, but he served with Paul. Paul elevated his service to be equal with his own. Now keep in mind that Timothy's faithfulness and perseverance and his perseverance under trials was in spite of the facts that it was not his emotional makeup, neither was it his physical prowess that energized that kind of faithfulness. Timothy, by nature, we read in Scripture, was timid, sometimes fearful. He dealt with chronic illness, and yet in spite of his physical weakness and the fact that God chose not to heal him of it, and in spite of his emotional timidity, he still, because of God's grace and the power of the Spirit working inside him, he persevered through all of that, and he was a great warrior for Christ. Now, let me tell you something. If Timothy did it, you can do it. You say, oh, but, but, but Pastor, it's just not my nature to, to, to be a courageous, bold person. Well, okay, that's fine. It wasn't Timothy's either. But you've got the same spirit living inside you that he had living inside him. You've got the same calling of God on your life to be his witnesses, to be his faithful servants. So Timothy is a great example to you and me. So now let's look at this man with a funny name, Epaphroditus. If this sounds familiar to you, anything that I say today, we studied about Epaphroditus three or four years ago on a Father's Day, if I remember correctly. I'll not give to you the same points we talked about then, uh, but it is this same man who's maybe his story or his name, at least, 
is familiar to you. We take up the reading with verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Epaphroditus. So who was he? What was his story? Why is he important for you and me living here in Fayetteville, Arkansas, 2,000 years later? Why did God tell us this story? about this hidden hero of the faith. And I'll be honest with you, over the years, although we know very little about this hidden hero, we only read his name once here in chapter 2 and another time in chapter 4, and we don't find him anywhere else that I'm aware of off the top of my head in Scripture. If you know of another case, you can remind me of it after church. Virtually everything we know about him is has to do with this brief story here, the result of his mission, a mission that was accomplished, his response to adversity described in this brief paragraph. But we have enough to flesh out the story. And I'll be honest with you, this man has become one of my favorite heroes of the New Testament. I just love this man. I wish my mom and dad had named me Epaphroditus. No, not really, because I'll tell you what that means, and it would have meant my mom and dad were idolaters, and I just assume not to go there. So let me remind you of the story. I know that you know it, and we've repeated some of these things every Sunday in this series in uh, the book of Philippians, but uh, let me remind you what's happening and the role of Epaphroditus in it. Paul is in Rome, and he's in prison. Now, he's not in a dungeon. He's not shackled to the walls. He's not being beaten like he was in Philippi, in fact, in Acts chapter 16, where this church got started. He is under house arrest. Now, he's a prisoner nonetheless. He's chained every day, 24 hours a day, to a Roman guard. And it's the elite of the elite of the Roman soldiers who are uh, a part of this Praetorian Guard. So he is under house arrest in Rome. He has appealed to Caesar himself, and he is waiting to be tried by Caesar. He has already said to us, I don't know how this is going to turn out. It may uh, involve my release that I can go and and travel again in, in ministry. It may result in my execution. We'll have to wait and see. 
This letter to the Philippian church is one of his prison epistles, along with Ephesians, along with Colossians. He's written several letters from this imprisonment and sent those out, those epistles we have to read as a part of God's holy word today. Now he's writing to the church at Philippi. He started this church with the help of Timothy, with the help of Silas, with the help of Luke. This church was started, this first church on the continent of Europe. And it was started 10 years prior to this letter being written. Now the church at Philippi was a bit unique. And one thing that made them unique, not only were they a Roman colony, which made them like a little Rome, and the people there very proud that they were ambassadors, so to speak, for the emperor himself and for the uh, capital of the empire for Rome itself. It was like a little Rome in a faraway land 800 miles away. But it was unique for another reason. It was unique because it was one of few churches that financially supported Paul in his ministry on an ongoing basis. If you remember, Paul said, I did not take a salary from those churches that I ministered to. Now don't take that, that all preachers ought to do the same. Our pastor Dan and I will be in a mess. Uh, Paul said, I didn't take money from them. I started churches. I was a missionary. I'm an apostle. We know that he was a tent maker, that he earned his living in many of the places where he served. But this church, they just loved Paul, and they supported him, and they sent regular offerings to him, at least that we know of. Now, keep in mind that if you were a Roman prisoner, it's not like being, uh, you know, a, a guest of, uh, of um, Washington County down in the Washington County Jail, where the county takes care of your meals and all of that. As a prisoner of Rome, you had to pay your own expenses. Under house arrest, he was responsible for the rent of the place where he was. He was responsible for his, for his food. He was responsible for his clothing. He was responsible for his medicines. But being chained to a guard, he could not do his usual tent-making work. And so he had to rely on the offerings of God's people and his own savings, whatever he had, to pay his own expenses. And so this church at Philippi had been late in sending an offering, and that's why he said Epaphroditus came here and he was making up what had not gotten to me yet, what was lacking in your service to me. So this church took together an offering. They sent it to Rome. They sent it by way of a member of their church, and this is Epaphroditus. Now, we don't know anything about him as far as his past. We don't know anything about his conversion. We don't know how long he had been a member of this church. We don't know if Paul had met him before when he had visited Philippi. We just don't know any of those details. But he was evidently highly regarded because he was given the responsibility over a bag of money to carry 800 miles, a journey, a dangerous journey, 
by land and by sea, on, ro on ro uh, roads that were infested with thieves and robbers and people who would do worse to you. And so this is what Epaphroditus was given the task of doing. And knowing the custom of reading how uh, this was done from other of Paul's writings, he would not have been by himself, but they would have sent several others with him for protection. Now, somewhere along that journey, Epaphroditus became seriously ill. Seriously ill. So ill that he was not expected to live. They thought he was going to die. Evidently, while he insisted on, on completing his mission, and there were those that were going to make every step with him until he died or whatever happened, they sent back one or two messengers back to the church to let the people at Philippi know what was going on. It was greatly troubling to this church. Well, Epaphroditus and the rest of the group did make it to Rome and to Paul and delivered the offering. And though he nearly died, even while he was there in Rome, by God's mercy, he was delivered and he was healed. Now, Paul is preparing to send Epaphroditus back down that 800-mile journey to Philippi in order to, uh, to comfort those people, to let them know of his well-being. And Epaphroditus longed to be back with his church home. He loved his church home, and he hated it that they were so worried, worried sick about him. So that's the background. That's the story. Let's look at the man himself, the man Epaphroditus. First of all, we have to start with this funny name. Epaphroditus means devoted or dedicated to Aphrodite. Dedicated to Aphrodite. Do you remember who Aphrodite was in Greek and Roman mythology? This goddess of love was also known as Venus, as Venus being the Roman name. And Aphrodite, Venus, was a pagan uh, god a god that was no god, but highly revered, one of the highest of all the hierarchy of their pantheon of false idols, false gods. Aphrodite was the goddess of love, not just love, not marital love, not holy love, but the goddess of lust, the goddess of all immorality, that goes along with it. She was the patron saint of all prostitutes in the Roman Empire. All kinds of evil things took place in the name of religion in temples devoted to Aphrodite and to Venus. And so the parents of this child, when he was born, dedicated him to that wicked, immoral, goddess. He was devoted. He was dedicated to Aphrodite. Now the question arises when we learn 
that. At least it does to me. Why in the world did he keep that name? I mean, why didn't he change his name to Bob, Bill, Roger, even a boy named Sue? I mean, call him anything but devoted to Aphrodite. What in the world is that boy? I mean, can you imagine uh, coming into church on Sunday there at Philippi? Brother Aphrodite, so glad that you're here today. Well, let's send the one dedicated to the goddess of lust to carry this bag of money 800 miles to Paul. That just seems so ridiculous to me. I don't know why he didn't change his name. Maybe, maybe we could surmise that he kept it as a reminder of where he had come from, of what God had done in his life of what life was like before the gospel. Maybe he kept that name because it really was a door opener to witness about your faith to people. Maybe people were so intrigued by that name once they learned he was a Christian that they had just enough curiosity about that to hear what he had to say about how God delivered him from that false goddess and from hell. We don't know why, but that's his name and that's what it means. Now, how is he described in these verses that we read? Let me bring your attention to to five things Paul said about him in verse 25. He said, first of all, he is my brother. My brother. By birth, no. By new birth, yes. Just like we are not brothers and sisters by birth here, but we are brothers and sisters by the new birth. He's talking about the community of faith. He's talking about the love and affection of believer for believer. Folks, We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I know in today's world of maybe families being more dysfunctional than functional, that sometimes this brotherhood of the saints really gets distorted in our minds. Some of us came from families that did not reflect real love and devotion in family life as it's supposed to be. So many families are torn apart by strife, by alcoholism, by drugs, by divorce, by a thousand different things that divide families today. And I believe one of the reasons that the nuclear family is so much under attack by Satan today is because by destroying the nuclear family, people have no concept in coming to Christ what a church family is supposed to be like. Why do you think we see so many perversions masquerading as marriage, acceptable marriage and relationships today? Folks, let me tell you something. There is only one thing in God's eyes that is marriage, and that is one man for one woman. That is godly marriage. Nothing else qualifies. 
this idea of homosexual marriages, of transgenderism, of all these things that are hot buttons in our culture today, they are the works of the devil. They are not the work of God. They are not acceptable to God. And they distort what a family is supposed to look like in the eyes of God. And it's why I think so many local churches are filled with so much division and strife and so much lack of brotherly love. But Paul begins to describe this one who was devoted to Aphrodite. He is my brother, the communion of faith. He called him also my fellow worker, my fellow worker. He's not only my brother in Christ, he is a fellow laborer alongside me, like Timothy. He is an associate. And understand that Paul, by saying a fellow worker, he is doing here the same thing he did when he was talking about Timothy just a few verses before. By calling him a fellow worker, he's not calling him his subordinate. He is not calling him even a member of his team. But by saying fellow worker, he is saying he is an associate, a partner in ministry of equal standing with me. Of equal standing with me. Now folks, understand, whether you are an elder, a shepherd leader in this church, whether you are a deacon in this church, whether you are a pastor in this church, whether you are a ministry leader in this church of any capacity or Sunday school teacher, understand this. We are all of equal standing as we seek to serve God. We serve God side by side, alongside one another. And Paul carries that idea even to another level. He's not just my brother, a fellow worker. He is a fellow soldier. A fellow soldier. This is a term, by the way, that is used only on special occasions. A fellow soldier is a, a term that's used very seldom, only on rare and special occasions. For you see, it makes the common soldier, it makes the regular foot soldier equal to the commander-in-chief when it is used. He is a fellow soldier. If a, if a Roman general or even the commander-in-chief said about his men or about one of his men or was commending maybe a group of those men and referred to them as fellow soldiers, that word fellow elevated their role to be equal with his own, just like fellow worker elevated the laborer up to the level of the one in charge. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's saying we are equals in the service of God. And no doubt, as he's talking about a fellow soldier, think about this, just imagine, he's chained 24 hours a day to one of the elite Roman soldiers. They change shifts every four to six hours. 
And so he becomes intimately acquainted with these soldiers that are his guards, that are there ready to strike him dead should he try to escape. And so he knows about these soldiers. He knows about their training. Maybe he talked to them about their background. No doubt he's tried to witness to every one of them and become acquainted with them and hear about their families and their desires and where they've come from and where they hope to be someday. And he's reminded that those Roman soldiers, that they have an armor. He describes it in one of his other prison epistles to the Ephesians. And he talks about their helmet. And he said it's like the helmet of salvation for Christians. How they are protected by this breastplate. Just like Christians are protected by a breastplate of righteousness. And he talks about a shield. That they have that small shield that they use so effectively as they did battle. The shield of faith for the Christian. And how they have that short sword. It is the sword of the Spirit for God's people, the Word of God. And how their feet are shod, not in some kind of, you know, limpy little flip-flops. These aren't barefooted soldiers like the pagans they often had to fight. But they have these hobnail boots that help them stand their ground. It's the preparation of the gospel of peace for the Christian. It has often been said about Roman armies that they advanced and they won battles because of the shoes they wore. And he knows that these men were trained to stand side by side, some six feet apart, and that to break through those lines was an absolute near impossibility. And he said, we as God's people we are like that. We are fellow soldiers, and we are there to guard and to mark our ground and not surrender our ground to the enemy. And this man Epaphroditus, he is my brother. He is my fellow worker, equal with me. He is a fellow soldier, a battle-tested warrior. Now, folks, listen to me. Listen to me. I want God to describe us as a church family in the same way, don't you? Don't you? To be more than passive pew warmers. To be more than people who are faithful when it's convenient or when I don't have anywhere else to be. To be people who are faithful, brothers and sisters in Christ, working for the advancement of the kingdom, giving of ourselves, fighting the fight. And he said he's not only those things, but he said to you, he is your messenger. He is the one that you folks in Philippi chose to send and bring this offering much needed to me. That means your messenger. The word means commissioned and sent. And is it okay for me to tell you what the Greek word is here? I know that probably doesn't interest you a bit, but it's the word apostle. It's the word apostle. You sent him as an apostle to me. No, not capital A. Not one of the 12 original apostles. 
But the other meaning of the word apostle, apostle we find all through the New Testament. We talked about it last Wednesday night. Those who are messengers, those who are willing to risk the journey, those who are willing to go where the gospel has never been preached, those who are willing to break new ground, those who are not always looking for the safety and the comfort of the church family where everything is safe and everything is comfortable, but those who will go out there and represent God in hard places. He is your apostle to me. It is a term of intentional dignity. He is your messenger. He is your minister. Now, can I tell you something about that word? Too bad, I'm going to anyway. Your minister is one who ministers relief. But get, get this, it is a liturgical term. A liturgical. What does liturgical, what does liturgy have to do with? Worship. How we worship. And basically this word in that context is saying he is not only your apostle, to me. He is sent to minister to me. He is sent to do priestly work. Priestly work. You sent him to not just deliver a bag of money. You sent him to pray for me, to be with me, to help, to help me in my ministry to minister to my needs the same way that a priest will minister to the needs of his flock. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if Epaphroditus ever thought about all of that, that he was this dear brother in Christ, an equal worker with Paul, an equal soldier to the commander-in-chief, an apostle sent and commissioned by a local church to do priestly work on behalf of the kingdom of God. That's what we know about Epaphroditus. We know a couple of other things. We know that this service cost him. Notice how it described his suffering. It says, first of all, he was ill. He was ill. Now, folks, let me tell you something. There is ill, and there is ill. There's all kinds of illnesses that we get, right? We've got some families at home because family members have the dreaded COVID. And I'm thankful that that's not as frightening as it was three years ago, aren't you? I'm thankful that in most cases now, it's hardly more than a sniffle in most cases. But I'm going to tell you, three years ago, it was scary at this time. It was scary. We didn't know if it was going to be a... We didn't know. But there's ill and there's ill. This illness is described in verse 27 about being near to death. This was a deadly illness. Evidently, what he had was evidently maybe known and understood 
because the entourage had sent people back to Philippi and said, saying, listen, Epaphroditus is going to die. He's going to die. We've seen this before. It almost always results in death. So he was ill, near to death, in imminent danger. Verse 30, Paul says, he risked his life. Now, he risked his life in going on this journey, this mission. But once he was ill like this, when he insisted on continuing, he was risking his life by the rigors of the journey. Literally, he put his life on the line. Have you ever been called to do that for God? I doubt any of us have. I doubt any of us have. He risked his life. It wasn't, this isn't just that he was near to death by an illness that he contracted that was none of his own doing. But when you risk your life for the cause of Christ, that is your choice. That is of your own doing. He chose to put his life on the line for his dedication to the Lord and for the sake of his mission. And then verse 26 says, and it, I'm looking back, he, he is distressed. Now, I want you to follow me here. Please tune in. We're, we're about done. We'll be done in just a few minutes. He is distressed. He has survived the deadly illness. He has survived the danger of an 800-mile journey. But he is distressed right now. This is an emotional struggle. Some translations, paraphrases, want to say that he's suffering with depression. And maybe that's a part of it. But understand, this particular word Paul uses in the Greek language, and the reason the New Testament was written in Greek is that it's far more precise than our English language is, and we get a far better sense of the truth and what's going on. He wasn't just depressed. This word is used only one other time in the New Testament. Only one other time. This term that's described and translated dis distressed here. And it's used back in the Gospels describing the anguish of Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. You remember that, don't you? where Jesus was in such anguish and distress of soul that the Bible said he sweat great drops of blood. By the way, that's happened since then in history. Doctors have recorded people sweating drops of blood. But the difference is before it happens to you and me, our body goes into shock and we pass out and we don't experience the deep anguish at least experiencing it consciously. 
But Jesus consciously experienced the pain and the anguish of sweating drops of blood. And here Paul uses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I might add, uses the same word to describe the anguish of soul that Epaphroditus was feeling. It is the result of making oneself vulnerable to a hostile and persecuting environment. What was his motivation to put himself in such anguish? <clears throat> Understand that this is even more painful than risking death. Listen, for the child of God, physical death is not the worst thing that can happen. It's not. There are worse things than dying. And I would say to you, child of God, now don't go home and do anything about this, but I would say to you, if you are truly a child of God, the best thing in the world that could happen to you today is to go to heaven. Do you really believe that? I think many of us perhaps do not. And it just betrays our doubts about the truth of eternity and the truth of God and the truth of God's care. The best thing that could happen to us today is to go be with the Lord, to pass through death's door, but leave the timing of that up to God. Would you do that, please? Leave the timing of that up to God. There are worse things than dying for the Christian. To suffer such anguish of soul that cannot be relieved, that cannot be taken away, that you cannot take any medicine to heal. Why would he subject himself to that? Why did he feel that distress? Verse 30 tells us, he nearly died for what? From an illness? No. From his distress? No. He nearly died for the work of Christ. Why would he subject himself to such physical, emotional, and spiritual pain and hardship? For the work of Christ. For the work of Christ. Now listen to me, Calvary Church. For the work of Christ is the motivation for anything and everything that is worthwhile in this life. I know it is our culture. I know that it is your training and upbringing that says you work hard for the sake of your family, and certainly that is noble. But ultimately, the work of Christ needs to be the reason you do what you do. For the work of Christ to say no to yourself, to say no to your desires, to say no to your own personal interests, to say no to all of your ambitions and goals in life, and to, to do the things God commands you to do and calls you to do and commissions you to do and makes you apostles in this world to do for the work of Christ. His work was to risk whatever was necessary to complete your mission, to fulfill 
your calling. I want to close with this statement. This is what makes this, I think, so pertinent to each of you sitting here today and those of you watching on Facebook Live this morning. It's easy for us to read the Scripture and say, well, you know, Paul did all of that because he was an apostle. Those prophets in the Old Testament, they subjected themselves, risking their lives. They experienced stoning and all kinds of other things because they were, apostles, they were prophets who spoke for God. We often say today, well, God called missionaries. They go to those dangerous places and they go where the gospel's never been preached because that is a call and commission for them. That's why Paul did what he did. That's why Timothy did what he did. That's why Silas, Barnabas, or any of the other apostles did what they did. That's why preachers and God call men today experience some of the things they subject themselves to because they've been called to do that. Right? But listen to me. Listen to me. Epaphroditus was a lay person. What does that mean? That means he wasn't a God-called apostle. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't a missionary. He wasn't an evangelist. He wasn't a preacher. He wasn't a pastor. He was a layman. A layman. He was a Hal Hall. He was a Garland Thomas. He was an Aaron Garcia. He was a Bill Taylor. He was a Steve Hignight. He was a Dan, a Don, a Brian, a Joe, an Al, a Morgan, a Rick, another Rick. He was a Steve. He was a Roy. He was a Brock. He was a male counterpart of a Donya, of a Julia, of a Debbie, of a Jody, of a Megan, of a Kathy, of a Myrtle, of a Shannon, of a Sue of a Karen. He was a lay person. He was a faithful church member who was entrusted with a bag of money and given a mission of delivering it to the man of God who was in prison 800 miles away in the capital of the empire. But Epaphroditus completed his mission. He was not a quitter or a coward. He put the cause of Christ before his personal comfort. He put loyal service ahead of his own security. He put himself in harm's way to serve his master.
He subjected himself to dangers from those who would harm him to steal the money. He put himself in danger of illnesses he might contract along the way. And because he cared so much about his church family. By the way, that was the cause of his agonizing distress. He knew that his church family back home was worrying about him, and it broke his heart. He could not stand the fact that his fellow church members were themselves worrying for his own welfare. That distressed him beyond words. But he put himself in harm's way, subject to all kinds of attacks of the enemy. And in the midst of all that danger and suffering, Epaphroditus gave of himself to Paul, to the church, and to God. Beloved, can I say this, what I believe about you, the members of this fellowship? Can I tell you what I believe today? I believe, if called upon, many of you would do the very same thing. You would do the very same thing. You know why I know that? Because you are faithful in small things. And those who are faithful in the small things will be faithful in the big things when called upon. And Paul says about that, he says to the church at Philippi, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Father, we thank you for men like Timothy and Epaphroditus, so many others. Thank you for their faithfulness, for their courage, for their willingness. And I pray, Father, that they would be inspirations to us today. And in our day, day today, that is so, so much a life of ease for many of us, where Christianity and church membership comes with no cost most of the time. I pray that you would strengthen us. I pray that you would test us, that we would be people of proven worth, and that we would be used of you to complete the mission you've called us to in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.